This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Just as the devastating outbreaks in long-term care are coming under control, there's a spat over new testing protocol being put in place by one of the big providers, Extendicare. It's instituting voluntary on-site testing as a way to control the spread, and now the union's contesting this on privacy grounds. Joining Libby's Nimer to discuss, as they do every Monday, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Muggeridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media. I'm a little bit confused as to how it would be uh, a privacy violation unless the information was used for some other purpose than stopping, you know, infection in the home. And obviously, if you put a front page story in that says this, this particular staff member got tested positive or something and did something would harm them. But I, I don't, I don't see how that's part of the regime at all. So I, I don't understand why this would necessarily be a problem in the first place. Well, and I, the, the I, other I, thing is it's voluntary. It's not mandatory. Right. On the one hand, Extendicare is doing the right thing. Testing, testing, testing. It's what we need to be doing to ensure the safety of residents and to ensure that best practices are followed. On the other hand, why is Extendicare privy to this information? Can they not facilitate the test but keep that information private for the staff member? Is it because they have concerns that someone would lie about it? And either way, I mean, public health health would have that information on file and they would be able to know, God forbid, someone ignored a positive test result. But, you know, is this a condition of having someone be tested in a home versus going to an assessment center for a weekly test? If so, you know, that could present its own challenges. So I guess from my perspective, you know, do I think that that extended care, the, the long-term care home operator of some 50-plus homes is being nefarious in collecting this information? No. I think that they're probably trying to cover their you-know-whats and and protect the residents in their home. And that is paramount to me. Well, yeah, yeah. so they would get it first. And and now the union is saying they'd prefer if their people go to an assessment center. But, I mean, I don't know, if it were you, what would you rather do, go to an assessment center and spend hours in line or just get tested at your workplace? I, I think this is a union thing, you know, like they they have to grieve everything that doesn't follow, uh, you know, these, these privacy pr- protocols. They're probably not going to fight too hard on this, but they just have to go on record as grieving it because they want the individual to get the information first rather than it to come go directly to the employer. But I, I think, you know, I, I think this can be ironed out quickly and... Uh, you know, we need to have these workers tested. Like we we know in the past, they've they've spread, um, you know, the pandemic by not being tested. So, um, you know, they just need to iron this out. But it's fantasy land. What is the employer going to do with the information if there's a positive result? Obviously, they're going to say this person is tested positively. Therefore, they can't be near the patient. So we've got to get somebody else in. Or I mean, it's not like they're just going to file it as saying. 
isn't that interesting, so-and-so tested positive. They need to have the information. The whole point of the testing is to take some remedial action if somebody's tested positive. Yeah. I, I think well, from the union, it goes around yeah. in circles. And I mean, it, it, it also, uh, you know, I thought we know that a lot of these workers has, have not been well-treated in the past, but in this case, if they had to go home and self-isolate, they'd be paid. Right. So That's correct. what's the problem? It just seems to me, and given that it's voluntary, <laughs> you know, if it's voluntary, then presumably you're okay with them having the information. Though, Marissa, I do see your point. You know, I guess it would be possible for the employee to get the information first. Well, that's what I'm wondering. I mean, it does Extendicare need to receive this information? Is there a way for them to facilitate these tests on site, which I think is the right thing to do? They should be. Frankly, every long-term care operator should be doing this. And I don't even know that it should be voluntary for that matter, particularly when you're dealing with such a vulnerable population. And we know 82% of COVID deaths occurred in long-term care worse it represented double the OECD average. So I think that we need to be testing more. Um, but is there a way for the for the staff member to get the test results before Extendicare? I mean, at the end of the day, Extendicare will learn what the test results are anyway, because the staff member will say either they're positive or negative and will or will not show up to work the next day. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Peter Muggeridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fightback's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fightback. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. As we entered our second week of Stage 2 of reopening, we started seeing some problems, notably in Kingston, where there's been an outbreak with a couple dozen cases related to a nail salon. The medical officer of health's warning all nail salons will be shut down if more are linked to a positive case. Libby spoke with Dr. Gerald Evans, infectious diseases expert and a professor at Queen's University. What is your reaction to this outbreak in in Kingston after basically you had no cases? Uh, Well, I I guess the first thing to say is that uh, uh, although we wouldn't like it to be here, uh, it's not a surprise. Uh, When you begin to relax social distancing measures with uh, the gradual opening up of various facilities, uh, then uh, there is an expectation that with low levels of circulating virus, even in our community, which has been, as you pointed out, uh, quite fortunate uh, so far in, in how things have worked out, you will see a flare of this coming up, particularly uh, if there are um, either some measures which were not uh, rigorously adhered to uh, in a personal grooming setting like a nail salon, um, and that can result in transmission. So uh, certainly it's, um, I think, been, uh, as I can quote my uh, colleague, Kieran Moore, who's our local medical officer of health, uh, it's a bit of a wake-up call for our community to recognize that we're not immune to the potential for uh, the reemergence of our virus and to see outbreaks like this popping up even in, uh, in our area. Do you think that it was uh, perhaps a, a little uh, foolhardy to allow such a close personal service as nail salon? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, we know that certainly grooming facilities, whether they be a nail salon, a spa, or, or even a hairdresser, that there is a close personal contact with uh, the person who provides the service and the customer. Uh, but having said that, we, we put into place and provided guidance for all these places to adhere to and follow the, the procedures that would be important to reduce the likelihood of that transmission from occurring. Uh, what's happened, and Dr. Moore has been fairly public about this, is that uh, some of the measures which were uh, highly recommended and should have been put 
put in place uh, were lacking in this particular uh, facility, and uh, that's what resulted in the transmission. So we're still getting a, a feel for if people follow, and we're talking not only the customers, but also the, the people who run the business follow those measures, uh, that may be sufficient enough to reduce the risk of transmission uh, to a very low number, if not zero, which would be our target. And do you think that the consequences now in place are, are enough of a deterrent? I know the medical officers of health also said any more positive cases resulting from this and we're going to close all nail salons. Right. So one of the things that, you know, we learn quickly is that there may be something unique, for instance, about certain services that likely result in transmission. Uh, my colleagues and I who are in the Division of Infectious Diseases um, at KHSC and Queen's University have been speculating that in the, the nature of providing nail care, especially a manicure, uh, the, the worker the, uh, in that salon is touching the hands of the, of the individual. Yes, they may have gloves on, but gloves are unfortunately sometimes a bit of a uh, a, a thing that dissuades people from thinking that transmission can occur. And then once your nails are done, uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have manicures done, but my daughters have had them done. And the issue there is that one oftentimes does not wash your hands afterwards because using an alcohol-based hand rub or soap and water uh, is usually uh, sort of frowned upon slightly just because otherwise it's going to ruin the very manicure that you've had done. So it may be specific, and I'm only speculating here again, it may be specific that it's related to manicures because if your hands are contaminated with virus, and then afterwards you, you don't have an opportunity or you don't wash your hands and practice hand hygiene and then subsequently touch your face, it's possible to transmit the virus by that route. So it may be unique somewhat to nail salons. I think maybe it's, it's uh, something we'll all think about because uh, I know, uh, in, you know among my friends, we're kind of looking forward to, <laughs> to a mani-pedi. Uh, but um, as, as you're saying, maybe that's something riskier than the other things and, and not the same risk for a pedicure because I guess you're not going to touch your toenails and then touch your face. Yes, unless you're extremely uh, flexible, I don't think you're going to be using your foot to touch your face. So a pedicure may, if, if this pans out to be the case, where we're continuing to investigate some of the aspects of it, but a pedicure may be a lot less risky than a manicure. Dr. Gerald Evans, infectious diseases expert and professor at Queen's University. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Even though there are fewer outbreaks at long-term care facilities, there's talk of a cabinet shuffle at Queen's Park and topping the list of those likely to be on the outs, the minister responsible, Mary Lee Fullerton. Weighing in, John Capobianco, Charles Byrd, and Karen Stintz, our strategy panel, joined Libby. Obviously, with, with cabinet shuffles, the only people that know um, um, aren't saying anything, and people that say anything aren't, aren't in the know, as, as the saying goes. And You know, it, it, I, there's a lot of discussion whether or not it's time for a cabinet shuffle. The, the premier has worked with this, this cabinet for some time, um, and there's also some reason to think that, okay, well, COVID, you had a COVID cabinet leading up to uh, the recovery, but also now that we're in sort of, you know, a recovery stage and, and getting close to phase three in, in some places, uh, and certainly in Toronto being in, being in phase two, that there's an argument to be made that maybe he should look at some of the, some of the cabinet ministers and who's ready to kind of take the next step uh, in, in the recovery stage and, and, and make some moves. But you know, having said that, you've got some really good ones that are, are still there, and there might be some tickling along the edges, and that's, I think that's where the media starts to focus on. 
Charles, what do you think? Should he or will he replace the Minister of Long-Term Care? She has not appeared sure-footed at all times, but she does have experience in the file. She's a doctor, and she's got the toughest assignment. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't think she's long for the Cabinet. Um, she went from being Minister of Training Colleges and Universities just over a year ago to uh, the relative demotion of long-term care, and the timing could not have been worse in terms of the you know, horrific state of our long-term care and nursing home facilities in Wait Ontario. Wait a minute, you consider that a demotion? Like oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, essentially, she became an associate minister to the Minister of Health, and that is really the, the big focus, which is what happens with regards to Minister Elliott. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks that she has performed poorly, but I noticed that Quebec's Premier was quick to dump its Minister of Health in light of uh, what happened uh, in their long-term care centre. So the question is whether Minister Fullerton uh, falling on her sword is sufficient, given um, just how incredibly bad the situation with our long-term care facilities has been. I mean, I, I think it, it is hard because we didn't uh, we didn't hear from the minister of long-term care at all. It was Christine Minister Elliott that was really um, the spokesperson for on behalf of the cabinet. So, I think that the premier does have to take some kind of action, whether it's a full shuffle or not. I'm not sure because, uh, to, to John's point, many of the cabinet has been performing very well. And during a recovery, I think you want as much stability as possible. But there is no question that something has to be done politically uh, in the long-term care portfolio because it's just been a, a tragedy. And there has to be some accountability there, and it falls upon the minister. Karen, do you think, what do you think of the uh, performance of Christine Elliott? Well, I, you know, I think she uh, there's no, she's been very public and very visible. And, uh, you know, dealing with facts that, you know, that, uh, the change. I mean, even as we, you know, we're, we're going to talk about face coverings and mask wearing. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was recommended not to wear a mask, and now they're making them mandatory. So, in the face of shifting information, I, I think she did the best job she could possibly do, um, irrespective of let's take out long term care because that was an unmitigated disaster. I think we all can agree. But uh, I think that uh, she was, you know, a, a strong and uh, a consistent voice that was, um, you know, I, and I think did, did credit to the cabinet. You know, I, I think it's important to note that the long-term care uh, debacle, uh, you know, it's far, it was far, far uh, a problem way before, you know, Minister Fullerton was even was even elected as an NPP, let alone as a minister, and it dates back to, to previous governments. So I think that's important to note. It doesn't make anything better, obviously, but I think the fact that the Premier has recognized that it is a problem and that he's made it such a huge focus um, you know, in his in his daily addresses, and as a result of what we've seen of, of the tragedy that's happened over the COVID, you know, tells you that there's no question that that is going to be a ministry that, if there is a shuffle, likely will have a very strong uh, minister attached to it to give the, the industry, the sector, and, and healthcare providers the confidence that the premier is serious about what he wants to do with long-term care. Quite frankly, right focus on long-term care, it's got to be one of those ministries that if there's a shuffle, it's, it's going to be one that everyone's going to be watching to see who he puts in there. John Capobianco, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Ernstcliff Strategy Group, and Karen Stintz, former city councillor, current CEO of Variety Village, who make up our strategy panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick. 
If this were a normal year, we'd be in peak airline travel season. The airlines are flying again, and there's a new wrinkle for anyone considering getting on a plane. When they resumed business, they enforced strict social distancing by not booking immediately adjacent seats. As of Canada Day, that ended on Air Canada and WestJet. Is it safe? And if you want a refund because you booked on the basis of that precaution, you're likely out of luck. Joining Libby to discuss were consumer advocate and journalist Ellen Roseman, air passenger rights advocate Gabor Lukash, and Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at Ryerson University. Well, Libby, it's not just the plane, of course. It's uh, it's all the ancillary uh, getting to it, uh, lining up, uh, and, of course, coming off. Uh, when you're in place uh, against the in your window seat with your air blowing right on your face and you put your mask on and you wipe down all the surfaces and so on, you're, you're fairly safe. But, of course, moving around, getting up for that baggage, mixing with people shoulder to shoulder, that's the problem. I, it's going to be a while before I fly an aircraft, I'm afraid. Getting rid of the distancing, booking the middle seats, how much more dangerous did it make it? Well, it's a probability game, really. I mean, nothing's ever 100% dangerous, 100% safe. So we try and uh, reduce that figure as much as possible. They used to think the wisdom was the two seats either side of you and two seats in front of you and one seat behind was about the danger zone. Well, then we know if you have a super spreader on the plane, uh, we did have one back in SARS-1 that managed to infect seven seats ahead and five seats behind and all the way to the windows both sides and two air, air attendants as well. That, that's, that's an unusual situation, but it just shows you that they're going to the washroom on the aircraft and touching those seat backs and lining up for your, taking your bag out the shelf above you is, is, a, is, a, is a potentially transmissible uh, event. Gabor Lukas, uh, were you surprised that the airline changed this kind of midstream and what's your reaction to it? I'm not surprised and disappointed. Uh, it strikes me as the airlines are putting their profits ahead of the public's health and safety. Even as we speak, Transport Canada has clear recommendations to maintain physical distancing on board aircraft. And in fact, all provinces recommend physical distancing not only in closed spaces, such as an aircraft, but even outdoors. So I am really struggling to wrap my mind around the idea that when you're outside or you have lots of air circulating, possibly even wind, you do have to stand two meters apart. But when you're on aircraft, you can be just less than a foot away from someone else, even if they're wearing a mask. Something doesn't add up to me scientifically. And I don't believe I'm alone with that. Uh, just yesterday, last afternoon, the British Columbia health uh, officials also articulated some concerns and pointed out that they have not seen any of the evidence to support uh, what the airlines are doing. Ellen, uh, the airlines are saying we're following the guidelines by, from IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association. Is that good enough? I don't think so. I, I do notice that some of the American airlines are also uh, getting rid of the uh, uh, social distancing. But while COVID was fairly new, I heard about a doctor who was flying around to conferences and he caught COVID on a plane and we knew about it because he was a TV doctor. He was often on one of the American TV stations and he said he was fully masked and that's one of the things that the airlines are talking about. Well, you have a mask so you're protected. But he said that 
he figured that somehow or rather a droplet landed on his forehead, which is not covered by a mask, and he might have, you know, put it into his eye, and that's how it happened. So he was saying what you really need is a visor as well as a mask to be fully protected. So I just don't trust airlines and airplanes, and in particular the bathrooms. You know, if you have twice as many people on the plane, you're using these bathrooms which are small, they're hard to sanitize, or is there going to be enough time for the uh, staff to keep coming in and cleaning it in between uses? And that puts a lot more pressure on them, and it makes me very uncomfortable to think of going on a plane for any distance. Dr. Timothy Sly, I'm going to leave the last word to you. Uh, your advice, if, if somebody after all this wants to travel, what are you telling them? Uh, Think carefully about it, look at the alternatives, and uh, make a wise decision. Remember, if you do get this thing, it's not not influenza. It's more serious than that in many cases. Consumer advocate and journalist Ellen Roseman, air passenger rights advocate Gabor Lukash, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at Ryerson University. I'm Bob Komsik for Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio and here are some of the best calls of the week. David in Toronto feels the timing's right for some new faces around Doug Ford's cabinet table. It's about that time of the term, right? We uh, all expected something to happen around the um, mid-election mark and uh, this is definitely the time and there were some speculations on when that's going to happen, but I, I think the summer is great um, in terms of who's in, who's out. Some people can only make so many mistakes until uh, some action has to be done. So I, I think this is a good chance for some of the younger people, um, the younger MPPs, more diverse. I, I think in terms of like communications perspective and uh you know, obviously the experience is there. Some of uh, the ministers have been MPPs for a really long time. They know how the Chris Parks, uh, you know, legislature and all of that bureaucracy process works. So that's definitely valuable. Roger from Lindsay reminded travelers the next time they fly, whenever that might be, not to forget cancellation insurance. My wife and I had booked a trip to Portugal and we took out cancellation insurance. There was a three-day policy that if you um, cancel for any reason within three days, you would get half your money back. We got half of the back, and we were quite happy to get half of the back. And with cancellation insurance, uh, that we sort of never travel without ever going without cancellation insurance. It was the best money I ever lost in my life. We lost $3,200, but who cares? Masks or not... Gail in Toronto will not be taking the TTC anytime soon. I just wanted to let you know that I haven't used the TTC only once uh, from March 15th. And I don't intend to go back on now because I have breathing problems, but I don't want to avoid the trash trash talk from other people. So I will, I, I'll be walking a lot more than later on. I am a senior, but I will be walking anyway. Peter of Exeter called to wish Canada a happy 153rd birthday. A happy Canada Day to everybody. That And we are enjoying We're going to have a barbecue and a couple of brown pops and toast the country. Uh, and be, be very, very glad that you live in this country. Even with all the complaining we do and the taxes and all the rest of it. Be very glad that you live here. 
And I was in England last year in, in the summertime. I said to a fellow over there, I said, you know, we live in two of the best countries in the world. And he totally agreed. So there, and he also loved Canada. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Verna in Oakville, who wants to see the rules concerning visits to long-term care homes changed. I wouldn't mind if it got even more strict if I was allowed in. I would be prepared to bathe in sanitizer, to have a COVID test every single day, to wear complete PPE, even a hazmat suit, if I was allowed in to care for my husband. He is deteriorating, as so many other residents in long-term care are, and it's breaking my heart, and something has got to change, especially if there's going to be a second wave. And at the moment, if the weather's too hot, my my visit will be cancelled. What's going to happen in October when the weather changes? We can't visit outside. Something there must be there must be a way. And and for me I would do anything. Anything. That does it for today's best of fight back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the fight back knockout call of the week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416 367 9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.